sayings of Jesus Christ. You know, my friend um, in the junior high who you heard last week, Landon Ditto, he pointed out to me yesterday that John Piper says something about hard texts that are found in Scripture. It's in, a book called, it's in a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And to summarize what he's saying, it goes something like this. We should share with our people the hard text in Scriptures, um, which is obviously inclusive of the hard sayings of Jesus Christ that we're going to be looking at tonight and that you looked at this summer. We should share with our people these things for four different reasons. Number one, to educate ourselves and to use our mind in a rigorous way. The second one would be just to think hard about the truths of Scripture. The third reason is to feel a sense of desperation on God's help when coming across a text like these that we're studying. And the fourth thing would be, after you feel desperation, after you feel uh, like you're in a state of desperation, maybe then we will cry out to God for help. Uh, Men and women, tonight as we wrap up this series... I hope that you can remember back on the series of hard sayings and reflect on what you have learned and what you're going to learn tonight, and then may we render to God our supplication for help. Um, let's pray as we begin. Father God, we love you. We praise your name. May your Holy Spirit come in this room tonight and dwell us, uh, teach us, uh, convict us, correct us, encourage us, whatever your will is, Lord. Um, we love you, and we praise you that we can come together as a group of believers and, and learn a hard saying from your son. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that everyone in this room probably understands the concept of owing. If not now, we've all felt at some point in our life some feeling of obligation to someone or something. Uh, The first time that I really understood that concept of owing someone anything significant was in April of 2003. And as you all know, April is tax season. Um, and everyone feels the burden of taxes. If you don't, you probably should consider that. Um, but for me that year, I'll just say that it was definitely a learning experience. Um, I'd been working at Grace for a full year, and my wife, Elaine, had come on board later on that year. And when we came on board, we filled out, we filled out all the appropriate paperwork, like the W-2s, and we signed everything. We basically thought that we were good to go. Also during that year, we bought an 1,100-square-foot house down in Olive Branch, Mississippi, and uh, we had paid on it for a few months, and so we were building up the tax breaks on the, the interest that, that we were paying off. Throughout that time, we'd also been given to the church every month. Um, so when April came around, I felt like I was set. From talking to everyone around here, you know, all the staff members around here, you know, I felt like I was going to get a fat refund, refund check, and I was going to go out on the town. I was going to get me a steak, um, maybe even order some shrimp as an appetizer. You know, something like that. So with all the, the happiness and the energy that I felt, I rolled up to Walmart. I hopped out of the car. I jumped, jumped out, took off, went directly to the TurboTax standard um, little setup that they had. I bought me one, and before I knew it, I was back at home filling in all the numbers on the TurboTax on my computer. So it's taking me through all the steps that TurboTax takes you through. And I'm filling in the blanks with, with a big grin on my face, with a big smile. I'm, I'm happy because I'm about to get my refund, you know, put in my salaries, you know, my salary, Elaine's salary, and then interest payments on the house, fill that little thing in, you know, big smile. Charitable donations, I fill that in, and that's really about all to my life. I'm not a very complicated guy. Um, and but nonetheless, I'm at the final step. I'm ready to go. One more click of the button, and I'm really going to go out on the town. I'm taking my, my wife out. And we're going to out back. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm happy as I can be. And you know, 
no one ever told me that if Alain and I both listed two dependents for a total number of four on our W-2s, just married, that that wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> four dependents. <laughs> that was... All of a sudden, I clicked the finish button, and in the left-hand corner where it was supposed to say refund, where it was supposed to say refund, it says, you owe X amount of dollars. And I was in a delusional state, and I could have sworn I I saw you owe more money than you have in your checking account right now. (laughs) You owe so much money. Right then and there was the first time that I was really faced with a feeling of obligation to pay a debt. And, of course, all, things ran, uh, all kind of things ran through my mind. The first being, well, that's not my fault. <laughs> it's not me. And uh, another thing I learned was um, slapping the side of the monitor doesn't help the situation either. Um, but the next thought that soon followed was something along the lines of, stupid government, just take my money away from me. They never do anything for me. And that was such a weird thought, thinking back on it, because even though the government gives us um, – highways and schools and police and fire protection and all that kind of stuff, my thought was, why should I owe them anything? You know, what an attitude. What an attitude to have. And it makes me think, is our attitude the same about God? Even though he gives us, as Paul writes, life and breath and everything, do we feel no obligation to owe him anything? I think this is many times the case. So I submit to you guys tonight one huge theme for the text that we're about to study. And the theme is this. We should render to God our very lives. We should render to God our very lives. We will see what that means and what that does not mean as we study our text in Mark 12, 13 through 17. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark 12, 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let me set this scene up for you tonight, because it is both interesting and very, very dramatic. Christ has made his triumphal entry, and he's really beginning to stir things up. Uh, He does things like cleaning up the temple, and he makes remarks like, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And that kind of remark doesn't sit very well with the religious leaders, of course, as you can imagine. So the Pharisees begin to question the authority of Jesus Christ. And they begin to scheme and plot um, ways to get him in some sort of trouble. To make a long story short, they want to get him out of the picture by arresting him. But as Scripture says, the Pharisees were afraid of the people Um, that were following Christ. The Pharisees, they didn't want an uprising on their hands uh, amongst all the followers of of Jesus. So they came up with a quite brilliant plan. 
they, along with some of the Herodians, were going to combine their efforts. And this in itself shows how desperate the, the Pharisees and the Herodians both were. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they weren't of the same crowd at all. The Pharisees, of course, were, were more familiar with because we see them in the New Testament more. And they're definitely of the religious sort. Christ refers to them as the whitewashed tombs because they're so clean on the outside religiously, but they're dead on the inside. The Herodians, on the other hand, were, they were more lovers of the, the pagan arts and the pagan culture, the architecture, the athletics, and they were also more loyal to the Roman rule. So for these two groups to come together in a common aim to get rid of Christ shows how desperate that these groups were to, to do this. So this is what these people who hated Jesus actually did. Scripture tells us, They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Big smile. That is laying it on some kind of thick. The sarcasm, or just the flattery is thick. Uh, the flattery is pouring out of their mouth, and they think that this is their way in. This is the way they're going to get them. This is the way they're going to trap them. And so, thinking that, they pose the question that's going to trap Jesus any which way that he answers. And the question is this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Men and women, this is a brilliant question. It's brilliant. In fact, it's genius if you're doing the trapping because the Jewish people are under the Roman rule. And they don't particularly like that at all. They're supposed to be the chosen people of God, and they are being ruled by a pagan people. They're also having to pay taxes to them. Uh, on top of that, a personal poll tax. So if Jesus answers, yes, pay your taxes, then the Jews that are following Christ would be upset at Christ, at Jesus, and the Pharisees wouldn't then be afraid of their uprising. If he were to answer, no, don't pay your taxes, then the Romans would see that he is being disloyal to their rule, which might bring some sort of charge of rebellion against Jesus. And this is where I find the Bible so interesting. And this is where we can look at this dramatic element to it. it it's like the point in the show or the movie. My favorite is, is 24. But, but it's like the point of the TV show where the tense music is going on and you're sitting intently in front of the television set and you're wondering how the, the main star, the, the main character is going to get out of the mess that he's in. It's like, da, da, da. And it's a tense movie and it's right there. You're right there with him. How is he going to get out of the mess? And then we see what Christ does. He says to them, Why put me to the test? He sees right through their flattery, obviously. And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Up on the screen is a denarius um, from the day of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar of Rome during the time of Christ. And on the front of the silver coin, on the, on the left-hand side here, on the front of the silver coin was translated from the Greek, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, um, on the right-hand side, is the back of the coin, and you see him sitting down on a throne, and it is inscribed Pontiff Maxim, which means highest priest. They considered this man um, deity. And so they brought him one of these coins, and Jesus asked a very simple question that even a child could answer. It was kind of like me if I held up a quarter to a, to a kid or to, to anybody, and I said, who's this on this quarter? Everybody would know George Washington. It, it was a simple question. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they replied, Caesar's. 
course it is. And in the way that only Christ could do, he foils their plot by responding to them and all the people around him with a very, very hard saying. It's a very hard saying. And the saying is this. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You know, the response that he gives these schemers isn't so hard to understand. That's not the issue. That's why they marvel at them. They understand, and I can imagine that you guys get it too. And what I want you to see tonight is that they got it and you probably get it too because, number one, his response is logical. He gives a very logical response. Because I understand gravity, I understand that if I jump off a house, I'm going to fall to the ground, and it's going to hurt. That's logical. That's reasonable. I can think through that. And so is Christ's response. Even to people like the Pharisees and the Herodians who were dead on the inside, they understand They understand also because Christ breaks the statement into two. Christ breaks his argument down into two sayings. Number one, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's obvious. It's obvious thing that the image of Caesar has been placed on the coin. It was also just as obvious that the coin that has Caesar's image on it supplied those Jews with roads and water systems and protection from enemies, just to name a few. And because the Jews used those privileges that were supplied to them from this money, it was logical to render that money that had his image placed on it. It makes sense, perfect sense. The second part of the quote, second part of the saying, render to God the things that are God's. This has to be just as obvious, and this is what made the people marvel at Christ. Just as that coin had the image of Caesar stamped on it, they know that man has the image of God stamped on it. And because we were made by him in his image, we enjoy all the privileges that come along with that. And as Paul stated, like I said before, in Acts 17 when he's speaking to the Athenians, life and breath and everything. Therefore, it should be just as logical for all to render to God what does owe to him. And that is the very thing that bears his image. You. Us. Our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't a saying that's hard to understand. It's a saying that's hard to apply. It's hard to apply because it should make us all feel desperate. Every one of us needs an abundant supply of grace in this area. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Okay. Render to God what's God's. Okay. Wait a minute. That's hard. That's hard to apply. It's hard not only because of obvious application, but also because we can't get a good handle on how these two statements from Jesus can coexist with one another. Like the Pharisees and the Herodians, we are either at one extreme or the other, and we might even prioritize our rendering in some weird, out-of-whack way. Please know that these statements from Christ, although they are hard to apply, can biblically coexist with one another. Some people have looked at this text and used it for the support of separation of church and state, 
things like that. They have viewed rendering to Caesar and rendering to God like mixing oil and water. They just don't mix. They don't go together. Because of that view of life, they find themselves living life in one of four different ways. I was reading um, a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce the other day, and he pointed these four ways out. The first way that we can live our life is that we can view God as the only authority in our life. That's number one. We can view God as the only authority in our lives. There was once a movement called monasticism that came from this. It's where the monks came from. And you might sit there and say, oh, well, that really doesn't apply to anyone today. Well, sure it does. Sure it does. All the monks did was they removed themselves from the dirty, impure culture that they were in. We see Christians all over the world removing themselves from the surrounding culture. They won't take part in particular elections because the politicians and the politics are so dirty and so corrupt. Absolutely no non-Christian friends because they might be too bad of an influence for myself and my children. They might rub off. Public schools, whatever. Not for me. Not even, not even to think about. Those people are too pagan. My kids need to be around just Christian teachers. They need to be around just Christian friends. They need to be around just Christian families. And hey, icing on the cake, forget about English, math, and science, Bible class all day long. Let's do that. God alone, or we won't take part. That's the first way to live our lives. Number two, Caesar is the only authority in our lives. Caesar is the only authority in our lives. This would mean to leave God out of the equation altogether. And when you do that, well, I'll let you chase that rabbit. Um, go read a little bit of Nietzsche and, um, and tell me what you come up with. Essentially, no morality, no accountability, and ultimately complete chaos. Third, the first two guys are logically the wrong answers to how we must live, but the third does allow the rule of both God and Caesar to coexist with one another, but to have Caesar in the higher position. And I know that you might think this is obviously wrong as well, and, and it is, but I submit to you that this is the one that plagues the church the most. We voice that God is supreme. That is what we voice. That is what we say. That is our lip service. But we surely can identify with having a bunch of Caesars in our lives. We all have obligations to many things that we enjoy the privileges of. Um, and we, we enjoy many things that... that give us um, privileges that we, um, and the privileges that I bring to us, and they're good things that God has brought in our lives, such as jobs and family and ball teams and, and clubs and school boards, good things. And we are obligated to so many good things, and because we find them so good, those Caesars are they're way up here. And God does coexist, but we find him way down here. Maybe you identify with this one. I'm afraid that we have the render to Caesar part down really, really well. Number four. Number four is the biblical model. Number four is the biblical model to show how God and Caesar must coexist. They must coexist, but with God in the correct position. The position is one of supremacy. Isn't that logical and isn't that reasonable? For it was God who created government in the first place. Paul writes in Romans 13, 1, Let every person be subject 
to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It was God who creates governments. It is God who creates families. It is God who gives us jobs and um, creates jobs and gives us abilities and interests. In the entirety of life, God is supreme. And because of that supremacy, we must render to God the things that are God's. Once again, the things that bear His image. Lastly then, lastly then is a question. What exactly must I render to God? What should I render to God? Because from the beginning of this thing, I've been saying that we should render our lives. What exactly does that mean? We should render our lives to God. Before I tell you, understand that this is where the text even gets harder. Because it would be relatively easy for me to do some PowerPoint presentation up there with the title, Life, as, as the, the main topic. I put life up there and make a list up underneath it of what you guys need to give back to God, what I need to give back to God. That would be an easy thing for me to do. It might look something like prayers, your time, your money, your, your daily attention. You get the idea. It can go on and on and on, and I, and I know that you get the idea. It would start looking like that old game show, Family Feud, uh, and the more that you get right, the closer you are to winning this game. Ladies and gentlemen, you must hear this tonight. It doesn't work like that. God doesn't work like that. If He did, then He would set Himself up as someone dependent on a creation who bears His image. And all that good stuff that we should do, such as prayers and giving time and giving money and Bible studies, all that good stuff, those things are works. And God isn't needy of people to work for Him. Do you get that? God isn't needy of us to work for Him. He says in Psalm 50, verses 9 through 11, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all the, that moves in the fields, is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God is not a needy God. Not one bit. He is a gracious God. So here is why render to God is so hard. What do we give God? We give God our lives. And we give it to Him fully, allowing Him to do a work of grace in us that will spill over into righteousness and into righteous living. You see, the glory of God is magnified to its fullest. Not when His created image tries to do something for Him, That's not when His glory is magnified to its fullest. It is when He freely distributes His grace out to His creation. We see that through salvation by grace through faith. And this is through nothing that we've done on our own. That's when He receives the glory and honor due to His name. Men and women, for us, this takes humility. This means that we must realize that we do owe God our lives. And that doesn't mean some little list that we're apt to check off throughout the day. Wake up, get my coffee, prayer, quiet time, um, go downtown and serve out of ministry. That's not what it's talking about. Therefore, this hard saying now must lead us to a point of desperation to bring us back full circle. 
This saying must lead us to a point of absolute desperation. We must go to the God that we owe our lives to and ask Him for a fresh supply of this grace. A fresh supply when dealing with our families and dealing with our jobs and dealing with our relationship with Him. Everything that coexists under His supremacy. Ladies and gentlemen, there and only there, we can be confident in finding it. And when we do, May it produce righteousness in our souls and even more of a rendering to Him. Let's pray. Father God, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, Your hard sayings where we can look at it and uh, even learn more than what's just on the surface, Lord. pray that You bless this time and You bless uh, bless everyone that's in here tonight. Um, May we apply this truth to our lives, live our lives more dependent upon your grace. I'm going to you every day for a fresh supply of it, Lord. We love you and we praise your name. Amen.